You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor Institute Ireland Conference. The seventh annual Tudor Institute Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2017. The conference was generously supported by the College of Arts, Social Sciences and Celtic Studies at NUI Galway, the School of Humanities at NUI Galway, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Disciplines of History and English at NUI Galway, the Women's History Association of Ireland and Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Diane Hall from Victoria University. Her paper was entitled Women and Sieges in 17th Century Ireland. This is part of a larger project that I've been working on for a number of years on gender and violence in in Ireland. Um, And my part of it in particular is on medieval and early modern Ireland. Um, And also um, part of it is also very interested in in war and um, the way that civilians in particular and non-combatants were um, engaged, engaged with both the military operations of wars within these periods um, and also with some of the fallout from some of the wars. Okay, so um, what I want to do today is I've been particularly intrigued by the way that um, women operated within what I, I could probably call the legal boundaries of, of war in this period. And in particular, I'm interested in sieges and the way that women were um, around, participated in, uh, negotiated the um, ending of sieges in particular, which were, as I will explain in a moment, um, to do with reasonably legalistic um, laws of quarter in particular and surrender. Now, sieges were, of course, the military arena in which women probably were most likely to find women in this period, notwithstanding the occasional she-soldier who pops up, perhaps the slightly more common spies that we find, and the much, much more common but very rarely um, differentiated camp followers or women who are in the baggage trains. But women, when war came to women's homes in particular is what I'm interested in. Today I'm also going to um, be looking at sieges that occurred in um, the smaller sieges, not the big sieges in the big towns and cities. They're, they have a slightly different, I would think, um, way of analysing what happened there. So I'm looking at smaller sieges, smaller castles, smaller homes um, and the sieges that happened there. All right. So I want to start with this siege, this woman, Grace Smith. So in the bitter cold of December 1641, Grace Smith, a prosperous um, Protestant settler uh, on an island castle fortification in uh, Kings County, negotiated terms that would save her own and her dependents' lives. And as you can see, that is from the, most of this information is from the depositions. Until this point, she had refused all calls to surrender from each of what were three besieging um, groups, uh, as she put them, loud Irish Catholic commanders besieging her island castle, and she denied and utterly rejected their offers of quarter. It was only when the lake froze 
giving easy access to three competing besieging companies that she started to negotiate. Now, Grace was operating within the legal frameworks of early modern warfare, where the commander of a besieged fortification was given the chance to surrender or face the consequences of unrestrained fighting. These rules or laws of war were not framed with women in mind. However, she and other women like her showed considerable knowledge and skill in using them to secure as favourable terms as possible when they could for themselves and for their dependents and also in the advice that they gave or the um, discussions that evolved with the men if they were with them. Grace's husband had just been killed after refusing surrender terms and been overwhelmed in hot and sharp fighting with Omaloy and had apparently said to him, um, what shall I take quarter from a company of rogues? Omaloy had promptly cut off his head and killed most of his soldiers. Grace no doubt was aware of this and she was aware of the need for careful negotiation to avoid, um, to avoid a, a dreadful fate. So what I want to do is to analyse how women like Grace navigated these complex rules and laws during the tumult, particularly in mid-century, so 1640s and 50s in Ireland. Um, I had hoped, as I said, to look at children as well, but, but I think I'll leave them to another day. Now, the legal context in which Grace and her husband and Artma O'Malloy, in this case, were operating were not always easy to define and certainly not always easy to follow. These rules or laws of war were nevertheless, nonetheless codified and they were aimed at modifying, restraining violence and encapsulising the ideals, probably, of what should happen in war. There are numerous broadly similar collections of these rules circulating in the 17th century and while women didn't feature prominently, when they're mentioned, it's clear that unrestrained violence against non-combatants was not permitted. It was not supposed to happen. This was one of the points of these rules or laws was to prevent this. At the same time, in these early modern laws of war, the presence of women and children and other non-combatants at sieges in particular was often presumed. Now, this is because while besieged commanders might wish for such non-combatants to leave early, besieging armies, those against them, were well aware of the extra pressure that starving women and children placed on the leader's will to continue, and they often barricaded them in. They wanted them to stay. If a besieged force refused quarter, in terms of, at terms of surrender, at the beginning of the siege, then if they were defeated, their fate would be uncertain and left to the judgment, or as they put it, mercy, of the commander of the besieging force. However, the problem facing any besieged commander was that if he, and occasionally she, but mostly in this context he, surrendered too early, that in itself was, of course, treasonous in the case of if they were fighting for the crown, or certainly it was not good. It was not a good thing, and you would um, suffer accordingly. Now, at many, in many reports of sieges, there, is, there are points where it became clear that the besieging force was overwhelming. They were going to win. And at this point, there often, not always, but often was another point where those being besieged could ask for terms of quarter, could, could try and arrange surrender terms. Almost always these terms were not as good as if they had 
given up beforehand, but there was a chance to particularly save lives of non-combatants, often not of the garrison at this point. And, of course, the time when besieging troops, the besieging garrison, was most uncontrolled and uncontrollable was when the besieging force breached the defences and rushed the walls of the city or the castle. And this is when we get reports of mass killing, wholesale massacres and rapes of women. And undoubtedly, and always, it's the knowledge that this, this is the fate that's in store was what was um, acted as a spur in negotiating acceptable terms at the right point. Now, of course, negotiated quarter, or ne having negotiated the terms of these quarter, was no guarantee of safety. There are numerous reports, claims and later prosecutions of both Irish and settler soldiers, Protestant soldiers, disregarding the terms of quarter, killing soldiers, civilians and looting their goods after surrender and after quarter had been agreed. Just one example of many, James Turner, who's a Scottish soldier in Ulster in 1642, recorded with some distress that the rogues of his own side, who sometimes are cruel for no other reason but because man's wicked nature leads, leads him to be so, were killing many civilians, including, he says, 150 women, without any legal process, after they had been granted quarter following a short siege. I think this shows that there, there was widespread knowledge of what the proper situation should be, just as much as there was often widespread disregard of that. Now, women, when they were heads of household, negotiated the conclusion of sieges and the, and the um, continuation of sieges on the defensive side, I must point. These are women defending, not women attacking. In wars in Ireland as elsewhere, usually when their husbands were absent, if they were the landowners. There was certainly no legal bar at all to women conducting sieges in the defence or negotiating for quarter. And there is certainly a lot of evidence that they may have been at an advantage in some ways um, in negotiating term, favourable terms, because they're seen as less of a threat than if this was a garrison, militarily armed garrison, with a ward full of soldiers. In Grace Smith's account, she presented a contrast between her husband's response to being offered surrender terms after the skirmish and her own at the end of the siege. Her husband had Seemeth being over-inflamed with by their wickedness and he refused to surrender. She was much more careful and asked from the safety of the island, what shall I get by this? None of the three besieging forces on the shore were prepared to allow her to take any of her possessions and movable wealth, so she held out against all three. It was only when the weather turned and her men refused to break the ice for fear of enemy fire that she started negotiating again. This time she, knowing her own danger, she says, and willing to prevent it if she could, went in a boat to meet with Art Malloy on the, on the shore. Now, it appears Art Malloy and his men were prepared to fulfil the terms of negotiated quarter, allowing her to take with her a substantial proportion of her goods from the castle, as well as all her dependents safely. However, her subterfuge of dumping gunpowder in the lake was discovered after she and her family had left, but before she had recovered her goods. Perhaps not unnaturally, they then threatened to mince her to pieces if they found her and she had to leave the area quite quickly without her possessions. 
Now, most of the scholarly attention so far about women in sieges has been on a few women who commanded, who, who commanded defences and left considerable records, like Lady Dowdall and Lettuce Fitzgerald, who were in charge when their homes were attacked. However, there are far more women, both Irish and settler women, present at sieges and surrenders than those few who are in command. I think what, I, what I'm wanting to do with this project is to sort of take, take a step backwards and try and see what I can of the women and other non-combatants who are of those often large numbers of people who were um, besieged within homes and castles. Now, when you look like this, women we find women who were present when their husbands or the um, male heads of household led, led defences and then surrendered. And they, the women themselves may have been involved in these negotiations. It's a bit hard to tell. But we do have women like Jane Boswell, who was among those besieged by the Irish at Temple House, County Sligo, for about seven weeks. Eventually, surrender terms and quarter conditions were negotiated and a document was signed by the head of the house, William Crofton, and others, including Jane herself, she signed. Now, we're not quite sure what, she would, what she, this indicates, whether she was part of the negotiations or that she agreed with the terms and was prepared to abide by them. Certainly, we do know that she was one of a number of witnesses who testified that the terms of quarter were not honoured. And her testimony in, 16, in the um, High Courts of Justice in 1652 was collected in order to try and prosecute members of the army who, for this failure. Women were probably also involved in, in private counsel, in, in working out what to do um, in negotiating quarter terms. And I want to just turn for a little, a little while now to talk about another siege. And this was at Dysart Castle in Queen's County when Martha Piggott, the well-connected wife of the um, head of household, Captain John Piggott, um, left several accounts of the end of the siege. Earlier on the day of the siege, John had refused to yield the castle to the Irish commander, Richard Farrell. And it was only when the Irish besiegers started a fire close to the walls, threatening to engulf the house, that Martha implored John to ask for quarter. He then agreed that his brother-in-law should negotiate for quarter on his behalf for the 150 or so people who were crowded within the house. At, this, at his later trial in the 1650s, Farrell maintained he had not been asked for quarter and therefore could not grant it. Instead, he had ordered the castle to be stormed. After its capture, John Piggott, his son and a minister were among many killed with the minister and Piggott's bodies mutilated. Martha and other women and children were taken out of the castle and kept in a nearby building until the morning when they were freed. Now, while Martha's intervention in her husband's negotiations for surrender probably illustrate a common practice of discussions between husbands and wives during tense sieges, her repeated and elaborated descriptions show an awareness of the legal consequences of what she was saying, as well as an awareness of the um, impact of what she was saying on the posthumous honour of her husband and, of course, the family's honour. Her witness statements were explicit attempts to craft a memorial to her husband and son that would enhance the honour of their family. In her first statements, shortly after the siege, when she was on her way out of Ireland, she presented a vivid picture of the crowded panic scene after the fire had taken hold 
the Irish were breaking down the windows, and she says she begged John to call for quarter and to embrace it, if happily it might be obtained, which of a long time, notwithstanding much earnestness, he would hardly condescend unto. But at length he yielded to this examiner's importunity. She had to beg him to surrender. She gave a shorter version of this at Farrell's trial in 1652, where she said she went upon her knees to the said major, her husband, and begged of him that he would accept quarter, which he then did. Martha, by emphasising that John only asked for quarter because of pressure from her, maintained, I think in her eyes, his reputation as a man who fought valiantly and never gave up, and who had maintained his position, which he had apparently stated earlier to Farrell that he would rather die an honourable death than live a slavish life. That's what he had said when he'd earlier refused quarter. While his initial refusal of quarter also meant, according to the laws of war, that his attackers were not obliged to give favourable conditions of surrender, Martha and other witnesses elaborated at length their belief that quarter had been given and that the subsequent killings were therefore unlawful. This in itself was another um, a way of enhancing her husband's honour, that he had not been killed in a, in a dishonourable, chaotic fight, that he had been killed unlawfully and that it was the unlawfulness that she stuck to throughout many, uh, quite a number of years. As one of her adult sons wrote um, after hearing of the deaths of his father and brother, it much moderates my grief that he died in a good cause and left good favour behind him. John's Piggott, John Piggott's good favour or reputation was important to the family and Martha worked within legal, established legal and social boundaries to ensure its survival even after the disaster of his death. Now, so far, I've concentrated, focused on the actions of the Protestant settler women negotiating the laws of war. And this is obviously because the sources favour us being able to see um, how they constructed what had happened. Um, and the sources so far discussed, of course, have been sympathetic to these women, like Lettuce Fitzgerald, um, Elizabeth Dowd or Grace Smith and Martha Pickett and others, because they were able to tell their stories of negotiation within the context that supported they and their family's legal right to hold and protect their property. How Irish Catholic women managed the legalities of this is much more opaque and hard to find. When there is evidence that Irish women were involved in sieges, Protestant sources put very negative interpretations on their actions, deeming their participation at all in the defence of sieges or in the, um, is illegal, barbaric and outside the laws of war. Description of one siege involving Irish women defenders are preserved in the English pamphlet Exceeding Happy News from Ireland. In this narrative, women are besieged at one Blackwood Castle, hurling stones from the walls on the English forces below. However, when these creatures asked for quarter, to quote, the soldiers told them they should have quarter, and thereupon they came forth, the soldiers being enraged against them because they did the greatest mischief by flinging of stones quartered both women and children, excepting some five who were brought to town. Now, the events of this pamphlet are probably fictional. However, the execution of such women 
would not have been outside the rules of war in that they had been taking an active part in the defence of the castle. Another better attested siege involving an Irish woman occurred in October 1642 at the manor house of Carrick Macross in County Monaghan. The siege was possibly led at least at some stage by Lady Evelyn, daughter of Ivan McMahon and wife of Art Oge. After the English overwhelmed the manor house, Lady Evelyn was hung. Again, if she did lead the siege or was involved in failed negotiations for quarter, her execution was legal within the rules of war. However, if she had been promised quarter, then her execution was not lawful and the sources don't tell us. It's more common within the sources for women and children to be said to be let free, mostly, um, after quarter even if their clothes and goods were taken away and their husbands and the garrison were killed. The death of Evelyn was recorded only in an Irish source. The Protestant notification of the attack on Carrick Macross does no more than record that the castle had been defended before it was overwhelmed. Now, there's one more um, Irish uh, woman that I want to talk very briefly about before I finish in about one minute. Do I have one minute? Thank you. And this is Bridget Fitz, um, Fitzpatrick. She was the wife of Florence Fitzpatrick, both of whom were very active um, Irish uh, within, within the, um, the wars of the 1640s. Her husband died, but she was brought, she was arrested, um, jailed and brought to the High Court of Justice um, on a charge of military, being in charge of military troop, troops, military command in 1652. Now, she tried to argue in her defence that she had, been, uh, she had been giving common refuge to Protestant settlers and that that's what she had been doing. She constructed herself in her defence as being a woman of the house, being, being a woman in charge of the sort of domestic, domestic um, things of her household. However, the evidence against her was um, seemingly overwhelming that she had ordered troops to kill people who had been under her protection, and she was found guilty and executed. Um, gender, I think, is important here in her prosecution. She was judged harshly for her leadership as um, this was a sign of her Irish illegality or barbarity, if you like. So, in conclusion, very briefly, the complexities of early modern warfare in Ireland, women needed to be able to negotiate these opaque rules of war, particularly in sieges. Some women formerly led sieges, negotiated surrender terms, showing considerable skill in using their available capital and resources and their knowledge of the rules. For many women, their role as witnesses to disputed agreements on quarter was crucial in legal proceedings. In all these instances, many women showed considerable knowledge and care in their negotiations of the legal boundaries of war. And I'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 180 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.